The events that are recorded for us in chapters 22 and 23 of the Gospel of Luke could literally take a lifetime to study if we were to give ourselves to that uh, by way of in-depth observation. But the events recorded themselves only took about 24 hours to complete. The events in chapter 22, which is the study, the chapter that we looked at last week, took about 12 hours. In fact, it was probably almost exactly 12 hours from the time that they went into the Last Supper until the time that Jesus was taken by the band of soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane there to await his trial. The events in the chapter that we have before us tonight, chapter 23, again, probably almost exactly 12 hours uh, for, for these things to come to their fulfillment. And so the events are very fast as they take place from the time uh, that Jesus has the Last Supper with his disciples until the time that he gives up the ghost on the cross at the moment that he perishes. Only about 24 hours and 12 hours pass in the, uh, in the span of the chapter that we look at tonight. And so sometimes we get the idea that these things took place over a couple of days or that it was a more stretched out period of time, but it was very quick that these things happened. Now, Jesus has been taken by the religious establishment and their objective or goal is that he would be crucified uh, and eliminated from the scene, absolutely. But before that can take place, they've got a couple of hurdles that they've got to clear. And the first is that he will have to face a religious trial. And the religious trial is that he will have to stand before them, that is the Sanhedrin, the governing body of the Jews, and also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders and all the people that we've seen Jesus at odds with throughout the span of the gospel time. But he'll stand before them and they will seek to build their case against him and find enough evidence to merit crucifixion, which then will bring them to the second phase of the trial, which will be the civil trial because the Jews in that day didn't have the authority to sentence anyone to death, they would have to bring him before Pilate, who was the Roman governor, present their evidence to him, and then persuade him to issue the death sentence that would allow them then uh, to um, bring forth the sentence of crucifixion upon Jesus Christ. And so they are fast at work at this point now uh, to see that happen before the multitude of the people, the common people that, of course, Jesus had their favor before they can find out what's going on. And so they do these things under the shadow of darkness. They do these things very quickly. It's a very crooked trial, um, but they have an objective. And, of course, we know that the hand of God is behind them in it uh, for his reasons of bringing forth the redemption of the world. And so the study begins tonight in chapter 23 and in verse 1, his civil trial. He's had his religious trial in the last chapter and now the civil trial. It says, And the whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate. Now again, the multitude here is not the multitude of the Jews at large, but rather just the multitude of those Jewish leaders that are looking to see him expelled. The Sanhedrin consisted of 70 men of whom most are present at this time. And also the chief of the priests, the elders, and the scribes. So we're talking about a multitude here of probably over 100 men, maybe more than that, that very, very early in the morning, it's probably 6 o'clock in the morning at the time that they're doing this, bring Jesus from the high priest's palace to now the throne of Pilate that was set up there in Jerusalem in those days for the sake of the trial. And it tells us then in verse 2 that, when, that then they began to accuse him, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute or pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. And so they bring three accusations against Jesus before Pilate. The first, of course, is that uh, they found this fellow perverting the nation. That is that he was rocking their boat. He was upsetting the status quo 
that allowed them to rule the nation and uphold their positions of leadership within the nation in the way that they wanted to. And this really is the only issue that they have. There is no other viable charge that they can bring against Jesus to Pilate. But for this reason, and and because of the strength of what they would call perversion, really he was setting things right, which was a perversion of what was. But because of the strength of that perversion, they were adamant about wanting this done. And so they needed to have the second and the third charge in order to get Pilate's attention. And so they come up with these fake charges against Jesus that he was forbidding people to pay taxes, which of course we know, we've studied the text, he never did that. He in fact did a miracle that allowed Peter to pull a coin out of a fish's mouth so that he could pay tax for Jesus and for Peter. He had said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. So there's nothing to this charge at all whatsoever. And then the last charge, they said that he claims that he himself is Christ, and they add a king. And of course, we know that Jesus was the Christ, but that his kingdom is not of this world. And so they gave him technically the right information, but it was altogether the wrong implication behind the claim that Jesus was making. But they knew that as soon as they said that word king, that they were bringing the charge of treason against Jesus. And so perversion of the nation Forbiddance to pay taxes and a claim to be a king would be treasonous. Those are the three charges that they now bring against Pilate. Now, he's only concerned about the third one of those charges. And so it says in verse 3 that Pilate asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? So he's, he's not concerned about the other two things. He wants to know, is there a charge for treason? Because that's the thing that's going to um, bring the most trouble for him personally. And so he asked the question and Jesus answered him and he said unto him, thou sayest it. Now, uh, probably not the best translation for that word sayest. What it means literally in the Aramaic uh, Greek language is to collect, to enumerate, to settle it uh, himself. In other words, what Jesus is saying is in very respectful language, this isn't sarcastic at all, is he's saying, you figure it out. But not in a way that we would say that. He's basically saying the ball is in your court. This is, you are the judge in in this instance. So you gather up all of the evidence and then you make a declaration uh, about who I am. That is uh, essentially what Jesus is saying to uh, Pilate in this thing. You put this issue to sleep. And and, and so Jesus effectively shifts the burden onto Pilate, uh, who really is the one who's on trial here. It's not Jesus. (laughs) He's going to stand at the end of the day, uh, literally. But Pilate um, is the one who's on uh, charge. Now, Pilate himself, the man, he was no stranger to Jewish custom and he was no stranger to the religious dynamics that the Jews uh, uh, um, were bringing before him, and he was certainly no stranger to human nature. So this guy's not a moron uh, that here sees this whole scene in front of him. He, he has to be extremely sharp to be in the position that he's in, uh, ruling over the people that he's ruling over. And so he knows what's going on here. So he sees the, the multitude of people, and he knows them, and he sees Jesus, and he's used to dealing with people that, that, that are um, zealots or those that would seek to overthrow the authority of Rome in some way or that would be guilty of treason. And so he's able to listen to them and then assess Jesus and very quickly come to a conclusion and make the assessment that the only thing that Jesus is guilty of, if anything, is the first of the three charges. And that is that he's rocking the status quo and it's bothering them. And so Pilate looks at them, talks to Jesus very briefly, and he's able to shoot right back at them and say to them in verse four, it said, Pilate said to the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault in this man. And so he read through the the whole thing immediately. He just saw right to the core of it. And he said, there's nothing wrong with him at all. But they were the more fierce saying, he stirreth up the people teaching throughout all Jewry, beginning from Galilee unto this place. And so they confirm his suspicion. They said, yes, that's right. He's stirring up the people. That's the problem. 
And we can't have it. He's rocking everything. He's ruining everything. All the way from Galilee, which is up into the north, all the way down into this place. He has affected the entire nation, and we want this man removed. Now, in this statement that they make, Pilate finds his way out, his open door to punt, as it were, and to not have to deal with what is before him right now. He hears the word Galilee. And so in verse 6, when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged unto Herod's jurisdiction, for Herod was the tetrarch, uh, the ruler over that part of Israel, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was at Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad. For he was desirous to see him of a long season because he had heard many things of him and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Then he questioned with him in many words, but he, that is Jesus, answered him absolutely nothing. Now this Herod that we're seeing here, Jesus um, brought before in the second phase now of his civil trial is not Herod the Great, the one who uh, we read about early on uh, in the Gospels as being guilty of murdering all of the children, um, the one who heard from the wise men, not the same man. Herod the Great passed away during uh, the middle spectrum of Jesus' life during those silent years while he was growing up. And in his place, there were four rulers that were placed over uh, um, the land in place of his one throne or his one seat. And Pilate was one of those down in the south. And then this would be uh, Herod um, Antipas, who was there placed up in the Galilee, up in the north. And Herod Antipas started out as a pretty decent ruler. I won't say he was a good man because he certainly wasn't that. But he did a decent job um, handling the dynamics of what was placed before him. And so he earned the favor of the people. He knew how to deal with the Jewish mindset. And he did pretty well before them until a man by the name of John the Baptist came on the scene. And John the Baptist, the prophet of God, caught wind or heard word that this Herod Antipas had gotten into an adulterous relationship with his sister-in-law. He had been in Rome, and while he was there, he mixed it up a little bit with Philip's wife, his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. And so she divorced Philip and married Herod, and then she came back and joined him uh, for his um, work there in the north of Israel. When John the Baptist heard of it, he had an audience with Herod, and he rebuked him publicly because of that relationship. And the Bible tells us earlier on that Herod liked listening to John the Baptist, that he was drawn to the message and drawn to the man. But when John confronted his sin with this woman Herodias, it says that Herod had John committed to the prison in order to save face in the presence of his people and also not to deal with the sin of his own heart. He decided instead to silence the voice of this prophecy. And from that time that Herod had John placed in the prison, he began to unravel. His his reign and his hold on things began to go downhill. He rejected the counsel of the prophet that told him that he needed to get right within his life. And ultimately, he pointed him towards Jesus, whom he refused by his refusal to the message of John. Now, Jesus, well, let me back up. John the Baptist ultimately had his head chopped off because of Herodias, Herod's wife. You know the story. I won't go back and rehash the whole thing. But Jesus was so affected by the death of John the Baptist at the hands of Herod, who was responsible for it, that now as Jesus stands before Herod on trial, Jesus answers him not a word. He certainly has no interest in seeking to defend himself in front of this man. And any word that Jesus will speak to him, Jesus would speak for the sake of seeing to see this man saved. Hopefully that he would search his own heart and realize something later on. But Jesus doesn't do that. He stays absolutely silent in the presence of this wicked man, Herod, who had refused the testimony of John. It speaks to you and I, and it speaks to anyone who will listen, really, 
to the importance of listening to the voice of God when it speaks to you within your life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, the Apostle Paul said this. He said that today is the day of salvation. You say, well, what day is that? What day is he speaking of? Today. He says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the day of provocation. Here's what that means. That when God ordains that the witness of the gospel be presented to you or to any individual, and God always makes sure that the message of the gospel is presented to every individual, then that is the day that you are called to respond to it. Don't put it off and say, I'll hear you more on this later, or let me give a thought to these things. Listen, if the Holy Spirit touches your heart and says, yes, this is real, this gospel is true, this is the day, this is the time that you respond to it, and here's why. Because you may never get a second chance to receive the grace that God is offering and extending to you. Now, that doesn't mean the door is closed for you to be saved. But God may never pass by with that opportunity again. And remember, none of us are ever promised tomorrow. And John, I'm sorry, Jesus here does not even open his mouth to this man, Herod. He remains completely silent before him. Well, it goes on and it tells us uh, in verse 10, that the chief priests and the scribes stood and they vehemently accused him. And Herod, with his men of war, set him at naught, or set him aside, and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him again to Pilate. And the same day, Pilate and Herod were made friends together, for before they were at enmity between themselves. Now, there was uh, certainly a lot of pomp and a lot of power brokerage that existed between the various prefects and governors and tetrarchs, those that had oversight over the land. And Pilate, in a way, outranked Herod and that he was in charge of a um, more prominent jurisdiction than Herod himself was. And so there was enmity between the two of them. But when Pilate had a case before him that was too difficult and he sought the help or the camaraderie of Herod, it broke down the barrier of separation that was between them, and they found reconciliation, and here's the amazing thing, on the terms of rejecting Jesus Christ. It's amazing that people can find common ground in their rejection of the gospel. People that can find no common ground in anything else in life can find common ground in their rejection of God. And that's exactly what happens with Pilate and Herod here. And so Jesus is now taken from the jurisdiction of Herod, very quickly brought back into the court of Pilate, where he will face the third phase now of his civil trial. It says in verse 13 that Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people, he said unto them, you have brought this man unto me as one that perverts the people. That's your reason. That's why he's here before me. And behold, I have examined him before you, have found no fault in this man touching those things whereof you accuse him. That is, the capital offenses of forbidding to pay taxes and of sedition, claiming that he himself is a king, this man is not guilty of those things. There's no cause of death in him. No, verse 15, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. For, verse 17, of necessity, he must release one unto them at the feast. And so Pilate brings the clear-cut case that he has in defense of Jesus back to this accusing body. And he says, I'm going to chastise this man, which was uh, speaking of the, the 39 lashes that he would receive. And that was always done for the sake of eliciting a confession. Uh, you would, the lashes would stop as soon as they felt that they had gotten everything out of you. <laughs> so you would be lashed until you confessed to all. And so Pilate says, I'll be satisfied to give you that much. I'll chastise him and see if there's any more confession that we can pull out of him. But beyond that, I'm going to release him. You are not going to get your death sentence. But that's when Pilate makes a mistake in his endeavor to set Jesus free. And here's what that mistake was is that he cited in some way bringing to their attention that it was customary for him at this time of the year to release one of their political um, partners that was a political prisoner back out unto them. 
Now, by bringing this up, that was his mistake. And here's why. Because by making Jesus one who would qualify for release on these terms, he's making the assumption that Jesus is guilty. Because it would only be a guilty party that would be released at this time of the year. And so they found a hook in the 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 um the the verdict, if you would, of Pilate, wherein they can now leverage him to get their will done. So notice how they respond. Verse 18. It says that they cried out all at once. So they all heard it and they all caught it. Saying, away with this man and release unto us Barabbas. You take him and crucify him. And if you're going to give us one, we want you to give us Barabbas instead. Who, it tells us, verse 19, for a certain sedition, isn't it interesting, the very thing that Jesus is being accused of, this man is guilty of, made in the city and for murder. And so he's guilty of the same thing that Jesus is being accused of, but he's also guilty now of something that Jesus is not accused of, and that is that this man was convicted of murder and who had been in prison for that reason. Now, Pilate, therefore, willing to release Jesus, spoke again to them. But they cried, saying, crucify him, crucify him. And he said unto them the third time, why? What evil has he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And they were instant with loud voices requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. And so Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. They were so incessant in their demand that he would be crucified The Pilate, sensing that he would have a larger uprising on his hands that he would have to then answer for before Rome, he decides to cave in and to give them their will concerning Jesus. And so it says in verse 25 that he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison whom they had desired, but he delivered Jesus then to their will. What this verse gives to us, verse 25, which is really the summation of the outcome of this civil trial that Jesus had, it gives to us, first of all, a great picture of what happens in a place or in a life when Christ is rejected. Notice what it says, but read between the lines just a little bit. It says again in verse 25, he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired but he delivered Jesus to their will. Listen carefully again, as this would apply to you and me in a very uh, real and very fearful way. When a person rejects the gospel and God makes a plea in his grace to them that he'll forgive their sins if they'll repent and receive his gift of forgiveness. And they continuously or they vehemently or seriously refuse God's offer of salvation and effectively crucify to themselves the Son of Man and say, I will not have Jesus. I don't want Jesus. Get Jesus away from me. Keep your Jesus. I don't want your Jesus. There comes a point when God will let your vice prevail over the reasoning of his truth. And here's what happens when when, when he does that is that not only does he deliver Jesus from you according to your request, but he also releases within your life him who for sedition and for murder was cast into prison. Who's that? Satan. That's right. He was the original treasonist. There was treason in heaven over God's authority. There was murder of the human race that was laid to his account because of his fall and because of what he did. He was guilty of sedition and murder. And he went on an onslaught against mankind. But what God does in his grace is that he insulates us from Satan's destruction because in his mercy, he will give to every one of us an opportunity to turn back to God. But when a person effectively rejects Christ within their life, God will not only ratify their decision to leave Jesus to the side, 
but he will also then lift the barrier of protection oftentimes and allow Satan to have place within that life to begin to tear it down. It's a fearful thing when that begins to happen. It's a scary thing when that begins to happen. And I know that it happens because it happened to me. I remember the night that I effectively and vehemently rejected Jesus Christ with absolute finality. I didn't want him. And I'm able now to look back at the years that followed that decision and see what happened to me. The talents begin to erode. The brightness that was of my youth and that would have been my future began to fail away and fall off. And even my mind and the ability to think and relate to people, all of those things quickly began to go downhill until the point when at last grasp, I said, God, I'll do anything. Save me. And by his grace, he was merciful and he saved me. But I know for firsthand fact what happens in a life when you reject Jesus Christ and his offer of salvation. And to the nation now that is rejecting him effectively, God is saying, okay, your will be done. Jesus will be crucified unto you, but him that for sedition and murder has been cast into prison will also be released unto you. This is also a very perfect picture of what happens when Christ is received within a life. Not just what happens when Christ is rejected, but also when Christ is received. You'll notice that Jesus was taken in exchange for Barabbas, who was set free. See, he was guilty of both sedition and murder. He deserved the prison punishment that he was serving under. But in this exchange, he was set free, and Jesus was taken into custody in his place. And so the sin that was laid upon Barabbas rightly because he committed it was transferred onto the head and the hands of Jesus Christ who was actually innocent and Barabbas obtained his freedom in place of Christ's imprisonment. And do you know that that's exactly what happens when a person receives grace through the gospel? That when a person comes to faith in Christ, the guilt that you and I have, the sins that we committed that are worthy of hell, all of those things are placed upon Christ who would go to the cross. And his freedom and liberty that he deserved through his innocent life is then transferred to us. I don't think it's a coincidence that this man's name was Barabbas. You know what Barabbas means? Bar is son. Like you hear Simon Bar Jonah, it means son of Jonah. Bar means son and Abba means father or daddy, son of the father. And do you know that that's what happens to every person that receives grace through Jesus Christ? You become a son of the father and you're set free. You and I are Barabbas within the story if we've received Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful picture of the exchange that takes place both when someone refuses Christ, but also when someone receives Christ. Now, before we leave the trial and we go on to the crucifixion, um, a couple of things. Number one, uh, what happened to Herod and Pilate following these sham trials that they were privy to that then caused the condemnation that led Jesus to the cross? Well, I said before that Herod began to unravel after the testimony of John the Baptist. And he continued down that slide, and it only took about four or five years after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ for a sedition to be raised up against him and for his nephew, a man by the name of Herod Agrippa, to accuse him to Rome that he was going to seek to overthrow and take power to himself. And so Herod was called to Rome to answer these charges and Caligula, the emperor, seeing the army that Herod had amassed and deeming it to be way too large for what he needed believed the charge of treason that was uh, hailed against him by Agrippa, his nephew, and he defrocked him of his position of Tetrarch of Galilee and had him exiled where he just went into obscurity. He lost his position. He lost everything just a few short years after this trial. Pilate's destiny was even worse. Historians tell us that from this point right here, he slowly began to go insane. And it only took four years. It was 37 AD. And he violently crushed uh, an uprising that was taking place up in the area of Samaria. 
And he was called to Rome to answer for it. And again, Caligula stripped him of his title, exiled him to northern Turkey, where he then committed suicide upon arrival to that place. And so just four years after letting this sentence go, he lost his mind and then he lost his life. He took it himself. And so an interesting destiny to those that gave Jesus over to the will of these Jews. And then finally, before we leave this trial, um, it's interesting for us to realize that this trial happened very quickly. It started at about 6 a.m. when Jesus first appeared before Pilate. And then he transitioned to Herod, and then he went back to Pilate, and the whole thing is over to the point where Jesus is nailed to the cross by 9 a.m. And so from 6 to 9 a.m., the whole trial takes place. Jesus is led out down the Via Della Rosa, and he's nailed to the cross at 9 a.m. So this trial happened super fast. They wanted it that way so that no one could stand up against them and seek to defend Jesus or prolong the trial in some way to keep it from happening. It was extremely fast. Let me come to the crucifixion in verse 26. It says, And so they led him away, and they laid hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. Now this man Simon from Cyrene, which is a city in the country of Libya in northern Africa, coming into Jerusalem, probably inquiring about the God of Israel or to worship in some way, to pay homage to him, respect to him, he is now picked out of the crowd at random And it's laid upon him that he has to carry the cross of Christ, who at this point is evidently too weak to carry it himself. I wonder what happened to this man. There's many different theories of what took place when he went back to Cyrene in Libya and what happened with his sons and uh, different times their names, the sons' names appear in some of the letters of Paul. We don't know what happened to this man. But what an honor it must have been for him to be interrupted that day and asked to carry the cross of Christ. It's interesting, if you think about your own life story and your salvation and how God got a hold of you, almost every one of us in some way can find a point of interruption, a point within our lives where God stepped in and interrupted our plans or the trajectory of where we were going with our lives, and he turned us in a totally different direction from what we had planned. It happened to this man, Simon, here and for the good. It's also, I believe, symbolic that he carried Jesus' cross. Because to carry your own cross was, of course, a symbol of guilt. And we know that Jesus was not guilty. Thus, he would be nailed to the cross, but he would not carry it. Simon would carry it. And it says that there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bear, and the paps that never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. And here's why. For if they do these things in a green tree, then what shall be done in the dry tree? Now what Jesus is talking about to these women is, of course, the Roman cruelty that they are weeping because he is enduring. And what Jesus is basically saying to them is, listen, if this is the way they will treat me, the innocent son of God, in a peacetime, then you just wait to see the Roman cruelty that will come upon you all collectively when the overthrow happens because of your rejection of me. And it will only take 40 years from the time that Jesus speaks these words for it to come to pass exactly as he prophesies here. That when Titus the Roman besieges the city and slaughters the Jews that are there and tears down and burns the temple completely, the slaughter that will take place there will cause these very things that Jesus said to take place. If they'll do these things in a green tree to me, then take heed for what is coming upon you later. Those days will be severe. And then it says in verse 32 that there were also two other malefactors. In the other gospels, they're just called thieves. That clears things up a little bit, doesn't it? (laughs) Led with him then to be put to death. 
And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, or the place of the skull, Golgotha, a place that you can still see in Israel today from where they hewed the stones out to build the temple. It, it's amazing. You look at the side of this rock shelf and it looks like a skull is cut right out of it. It says, there they crucified him and the malefactors also, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And then said Jesus, one of the seven sayings that he uttered from the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Speaking, of course, to those that are crucifying him and also those that delivered him to be crucified and in a greater sense, speaking forth to all of those that will ever live for the forgiveness of sins, announcing, in a sense, the very reason why he's on the cross in the first place. It's to pronounce the forgiveness of sins. Now, does this mean, because Jesus said these words from the cross, that automatically the sin of crucifying Christ is just absolved? That because Jesus said these words, that no one will be charged for their part in this in any way? I don't think so. But what this does do is that it opens up the door for forgiveness to be obtained if they go through the proper channel. See, sin is not just automatically forgiven to anyone. Sin must be accounted for and every sin must be judged individually. And every sin that is repented of and placed under the blood of Jesus Christ is automatically forgiven, including this one. Meaning that any one of these people could turn their heart to the Father, repent of this sin, and obtain forgiveness for it. But nobody can just be forgiven just because. We must do something with our sin. That's why every one of us needs a Savior. Because he's the only one that paid the price great enough to cover the multitude of sins that all of us are guilty of. Another thing that this, um, to me, reveals is the heart of forgiveness that God has towards sinners. That he is willing, at least on his end of things, As much as he is responsibility for, he is willing to issue forth the forgiveness, to release the debt of sin. And I think that's an important thing for you and I to consider in our own lives as well, in that we are also asked to forgive those that sin against us. From time to time, people will ask me and they'll say, do I have to forgive someone who's not sorry? In other words, there's a conflict or there's a person or there's been an offense and they're not sorry for what they've done. And if I forgive them, they're just going to do it again. And as many times as I forgive, they're just going to keep doing it again. Do I have to forgive a person in the instance when they're not sorry? Well, the answer is yes, you absolutely do. And here's why. Not for their sake, but for yours. Because it allows the bitterness that arboring that unforgiveness inside of you to be released. It's when we forgive them, even if we don't say that we forgive them to them, but keeping in our own account a release of that debt, just forgiving it constantly. Sometimes people say to me, Pastor, I want to forgive this person, but I'm so afraid that if I do, there will be reconciliation in the relationship. It's just too much. I can't handle it. The drama, the the continued, repeated issues that come up with this person. I'm just afraid if I forgive them, if I go to them and say, I forgive you, that it's just going to put me back on the merry-go-round and we go around the cycle one more time. What I'll say to that person often, not a married person, this is another conflict. (laughs) What I'll say to that person oftentimes is then don't go to that person. You just forgive that person. You right now before God, get down on your knees and you say, Lord, in Jesus name, I release that person and the debt that their sin incurred against me. Lord, let it not be laid to their charge. And as much as it's within me, Lord, I forgive them of that sin and let go of it completely. Forgive them in your heart and then move on with your life. But don't hold on to it. Unforgiveness is fertile ground for the root of bitterness. And the root of bitterness, when fully grown, defiles many. And so Jesus, the heart of forgiveness shown from the cross, And then it says that they parted his raiment, his clothing, and they cast lots for it. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he be the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering vinegar, and saying, if you be the king of the Jews, then save yourself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, 
and Latin and Hebrew that read, this is the king of the Jews. Now, Luke does something here that's extremely uh, clever, if you would, and practical, is that in between verses 32 all the way through verse 37, he gives to us in fast succession a list of Old Testament prophecies that were uh, completed or fulfilled in the act of Jesus Christ going to the cross. Uh, First one, of course, is with the thieves, the malefactors that he's crucified with. It says in Isaiah 53, verse 12, he says, therefore, speaking of the crucifixion in the future, I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he has poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And so the fact that he would be crucified with these men was prophesied by Isaiah in the Old Testament spoken of by Luke. The second is that he would die by crucifixion, that that would be the means of execution that they would bring upon him, specifically prophesied in Psalm chapter 22, verse 16. David speaking by the spirit of God, looking forward to the crucifixion, he says, for dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. The crucifixion prophesied hundreds of years before it came to pass. The third is the fact that he would intercede for the transgressors. The end of Isaiah 52, uh, or I'm sorry, Isaiah 53 verse 12 that we already read where it says at the end of that verse that he made intercession for the transgressors fulfilled by Jesus upon the cross when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The fact that they would cast lots for his clothing prophesied in Psalm chapter 22, verse 18. It says, they parted my garments among them and they cast lots upon my vesture. Prophesied hundreds of years again before it was fulfilled. The fifth prophecy that the people would stand there gazing, beholding him while he was there upon the cross. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. In the middle of the verse, it says, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And then again, in Psalm 22, verse 17, it says that they all look and stare upon me. Luke records it, that the people stood gazing at him uh, or looking at him while he was there. Number seven or six, rather, the fact that the rulers derided him, as it says in verse 35, and then the mockery that followed in verse 36 prophesied in Psalm chapter 22 verse 12 it says many bulls have compassed me strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round about they gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and roaring lion speaking of the soldiers that were there surrounding at the foot of the cross and then finally uh, the seventh prophecy is the mockery that took place prophesied in Psalm 22 in verse 7 where it says All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him, seeing that he delighted in him. The very thing that they said to Jesus verbatim at the cross. If you be the king of the Jews, save yourself. He saved others, but himself he cannot save. The very words of mockery that were prophesied, uh, um, Luke records that they were spoken. There were 28 prophecies, Old Testament specific prophecies that were fulfilled in this 24 hour period of time. Now, if you just stop and think for one moment, the natural probability of one man fulfilling those prophecies by chance, it's absolutely impossible. Somebody one time tried to figure it out mathematically. What would be the chances that one man could, by chance, fulfill just eight of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled just in his crucifixion and his resurrection? And the conclusion that they came to is that the probability of one man being able to fulfill the prophecies the way Jesus did would be like this, is if you covered the state of Texas knee-deep in quarters, the entire state, and then flew over the Texas state and at random jumped out of the airplane, parachuted to the ground, blindfolded yourself, turned around in three circles, bent over and picked up a quarter, and having that one quarter be the one quarter of all of them that's painted red. 
That would be the probability of one man being able to fulfill these prophecies. That's why God put those prophecies there. So that we would see what he said would happen beforehand, see the record of how it came to pass exactly as God said in a way that no one could orchestrate or plan out. And that we would then see and say, yes, God, you are real. Your word is true. Jesus is the Christ. And so Luke points out the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his death, ending with the superscription. And then in verse 39, we have the repentant thief. It says, And one of the malefactors, one of the thieves which were hanged, railed on him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing amiss. And then he said, and he turns to Jesus now, and he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, now this is one of the most remarkable sayings of Jesus that he ever made in all of his ministry come from the cross. He said, verily I say unto thee, today you shall be with me in paradise. Now how remarkable is it that here's a man who confesses his guilt, acknowledges that he deserves the sentence that he is serving, turns to Jesus, asks for mercy, and in one moment he's promised that he will be eternally saved and on that very day he will see paradise. Now this is amazing because what this does is that it gives us a very clear picture of the nature of the salvation that Jesus purchased upon the cross. The salvation that Jesus gave to us, first of all, is extremely simple. I want you to notice four things that this thief, this guilty man does that Jesus recognizes and declares salvation upon him. Number one is that he recognizes his own guilt before the Lord. Number two, he recognized Jesus' innocence. He said, we are guilty. This man has done nothing wrong. Number three, he calls on Jesus as Lord. He says, Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then number four, he expresses faith in his person and in his kingdom. So he acknowledges his guilt, Jesus' righteousness. He calls on him as the Lord and in faith asks for mercy that he would be a part of his kingdom. And Jesus is able with those four things present within the life to declare this man to be completely saved from that very moment. That's the simplicity of the gospel and of the salvation that you and I have obtained. We acknowledge our guilt before a holy God. We acknowledge his innocence in the life that he lived upon the earth. We come to him acknowledging that him that he is the Lord and we make him the Lord of our lives. And then in faith, we confess that truth to be so for us and ask for his forgiveness, a profession with the mouth. And the Bible says that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. That's the simple gospel. I don't think it can get any simpler than that. But you know what's amazing? Is that we've made it simpler than that. There are many people that want to make it even simpler than this, that I don't have to bring the admission of my own guilt and I don't have to repent of my sins, that I can just come to him and confess him and believe and I'll be saved. No, 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 no. This man acknowledged his guilt and Christ's righteousness and he turned to him in faith. It's a simple salvation. Notice also the immediacy of salvation. As soon as the words are spoken, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. There's no need for him to say, well, now you need to go be catechized. Now you need to go baptize yourself or be baptized. Or after you spend a few years in purgatory, I mean, your sins are pretty weighty. Then maybe we'll see if we can get you out of there. Maybe if enough, you know, candles are lit or whatever on your behalf, then we could see. He doesn't say any of those things. He says, today you will be with me in, in paradise. And the moment a person calls on Jesus for salvation in this way, their sins are immediately forgiven. Notice also the completeness of the salvation, that all of his sins are forgiven at that moment. Every one of them, enough that he was crucified, all of the sin is taken away. Notice also the timing of his salvation, that it takes place even up to the moment of his death. 
A man who lived his entire life apart from God and in rebellion against God turns to God in the last moment and he obtains salvation in that time. You say, hey, wait. Does that mean all I have to do is the moment before I am about to pass off the scene, I just have to repent real quick and that this is just a game of musical chairs. I just have to beat the, the, the bell, confess Christ before the music stops. Absolutely not. And here's why. Because this man absolutely did have a change of heart and a change of life in this moment. And anyone who has a change of heart, even if it's at the moment of their death, can be forgiven of every sin that they had. And here's the proof that I can submit to you that this man truly had a change of heart. Is that if somehow he was miraculously taken down from the cross and he could go on with his life, this man would have lived his life, every breath of it, the rest of it, for Jesus in every way that he could have. This man, at this moment, was completely severed from his own life. And that's what caused him to call on Jesus. And that's what Jesus saw in him that made Jesus say, today you will be with me in paradise. And then notice, finally, concerning this salvation, notice God's willingness to give salvation. Think about it for just a moment. This man could do absolutely nothing to repay God for what's been given to him. Nothing. God gets absolutely zero return on his investment for this man's salvation. He doesn't ever cut the lawn at the church. He never serves in the Sunday school. He never teaches a Bible study, never leads a single person to Jesus Christ, doesn't even offer a single prayer for anybody else. He does nothing, and yet God is willing to save him, even though God's going to get nothing for it. And I want you to understand something, Christian. Understand something here tonight. Is that God's heart in saving you is exactly the same as that. He did not save you or me for anything that we will do for him or anything that he will get out of us. He saved us because he loves us and because we needed a savior. And he was willing to pay the price for that reason and that reason alone. And we see that pictured here so perfectly in this thief upon the cross who gave his life to Christ at the last moment um, of his uh, earthly existence. And then it says it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in the midst. This was not an eclipse, by the way. Uh, the time of the Passover was on the 14th of the month. It would always be a full moon. At that time, in a lunar calendar, it's impossible to have a total solar eclipse uh, at that time of the month. So this was supernatural that the sun was darkened. And it says that then the veil of the temple was torn in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost, feeling completely separated from God at this time, having done everything to his best ability to fulfill the Father's will. He now yields the outcome of all of it into his hand and yields up his spirit. Now, when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. And all the people that came together to that site, beholding the things that were done, smote their breasts and returned. And all his acquaintance and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off beholding these things. A very somber moment. You see the reaction of the various parties that were there. And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor. So this man was part of the Sanhedrin or the 70 that had condemned Jesus to death, but who had no doubt abstained from the meeting that morning and from uh, the voice to crucify Christ. And it says that he was a good man and a just, and the same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them. And he was of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. And so there was a man among them who, who with a noble heart and a desire for God's will and God's kingdom to be established. He now comes and it says that this man went unto Pilate and he begged for the body of Jesus. And here's why. He took it down. And he wrapped it in linen and laid it in a tomb that was hewn in the stone wherein never man before was laid. And that day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew on. And so here's the scene and here's why the expediency of this request that uh, Joseph brings to Pilate is that there are essentially three hours between 3 p.m. when Jesus yields up the ghost and 6 p.m. when the sun will set and the Sabbath will begin. 
And if Jesus isn't given a proper burial in that three-hour span, then his body will be thrown over the Kidron Valley, Valley because once you were condemned and crucified in that way, you lost the right to a proper burial. And since no Jew could be ceremonially unclean in that way on the Sabbath day, Jesus' body would certainly be destroyed. But God needed that body. It was evidence. Evidence of what will come in the future. And so this man, Joseph of Arimathea, quickly begs for the body, quickly prepares spices, quickly gets the body laid in the tomb, not even totally properly. They're going to come back and do that later on because he wants Jesus sealed in the tomb before the Passover, before sundown comes, and he succeeds in his endeavor. So verse 55, And so the women also, which came with them from Galilee, followed after, and behold the sepulcher, and how the body was laid. And they returned, and they prepared spices and ointments, and then they rested the seventh day according to the commandment. They rested, but Jesus also rested. It was only a week ago, Palm Sunday, that Jesus had come into Jerusalem for this final phase of laying down his life as a ransom for the world. And for six days, Jesus had labored in Jerusalem in this final act of laying down his life. And on the end of this sixth day, he now yields up the ghost. And he will spend the seventh day resting, literally, in the tomb, laying there. So Jesus was in the tomb for the last part of the day on Friday. This would be Good Friday. And then he rested in the tomb the entire day of Saturday from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. And then very early in the morning, Sunday, the third day, we're going to see what happens when we convene our study in chapter 24 uh, next week. What's amazing to me as we conclude this chapter is the amount of activity and action that took place in such a short period of time. The four Jesus disciples who were just observing what was taking place within his life, it went from life as usual to Jesus being tried, crucified, and gone within such a short period of time, less than a day between when all these things happened. Life as usual, then judgment, and he's gone. Do you know that that same fate is headed not just for our Lord, but also for the world that we live in in our day? There's a time coming when it will be life as usual and then judgment will happen in very rapid succession and it will all end in the same way. Uh, Amazing what we're headed for. The musicians can come uh, as we conclude our study um, tonight. Teaching this part of the Bible uh, is always, for me, a very unsettling um, thing to do. And And I've never understood why. You know, there's a lot of parts of the Bible that are difficult or they're hard to understand or it takes a lot of history or background to study and all. But, you you know, you get to a point where you feel like, yeah, I'll never really understand the fullness of a text, but I, I have enough of an understanding of it that I feel as though I can communicate that. But I never feel that way when I come to this chapter or this portion or this passage. It just seems like there's so much here. And in a lifetime, in 10 lifetimes, you could study just these chapters and never really extract everything that there is to see and everything that there is to understand and really even understand all that took place there. I mean, we see so much, but yet there's so little that we can really comprehend of what was taking place in that time between the Father and the Son and between heaven and hell and between earth and and all these things that are taking place in the invisible realms. And I believe that if we could really see all that was taking place in the crucifixion of Christ, every one of us would probably die immediately just for overwhelmedness to understand uh, what took place there upon the cross. It was huge. When I read Revelation, the book that describes the judgment that is coming upon a sinful world, I read chapters 6 through 19, which really talk about the destruction that's coming. And I see that in those chapters, the price of sin is described. You read about the locusts and the plagues and the hailstones and, you know, the scorching heat. You read about all of those things that are the judgment for sin. And here's what we must recognize. Is that in order for Jesus to pay the price for our sins, he had to experience at least the equivalent of that between the time that he was in the Garden of Gethsemane 
and the time that he gave up the ghost. Because otherwise it's unequal. The one is judged harsher than the other. But the Bible says that God laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so that helps me just a little bit to gain some perspective into what was going on on the cross at that time. But there's one question that remains. The elephant in the room is this. Why? Why would God subject his son to such a brutal treatment when there was nothing essentially in it for him? Or we could say that what was in it for him was us. What would make us, what would make man, what would make you and me worth it for God to give his only son so that our sins could be completely forgiven and we could be set free? I don't know what the answer is. But it has been said that the value of something is determined by how much someone is willing to pay for it. And if God would be willing to give the most treasured substance in all of the universe, his son and the blood of his son, in order for you and I to be redeemed unto him, then it must be that in his mind, somehow it's worth it. And I believe that even in eternity, not one of us will ever know with fullness the great expense that it was to God for him to redeem us and how much our redemption cost. But here's God's word to us through this passage and through our study tonight, that he looks at each one of us and he sees every one of our sins and he sees all of what we are and he says, it's worth it. And he proved it by paying the highest price that could be paid. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, as we conclude this look into what was accomplished on our behalf so long ago. And I pray, Lord, that gratitude might rise up in us as we realize how little we deserve, but yet how much you gave. And tonight, Lord, we're asking that by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit, you would reveal Jesus to us just a little bit more, that we might comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. That we might see somehow, Lord, your unconditional love in a way that we never have. And that we might be changed by it. So in this time, Lord, as we close this service, as we worship, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would just move upon our hearts as you reveal Jesus to us. Lord, that we might know you in a greater way. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen.